Heavenly Father, we ask that you would teach us today by the power of your Spirit so that we do not depart from your laws. Oh, Lord, we know that if it is up to us, we will stray far from your ways. But, Lord, if you teach us by the power of your Spirit and strengthen us to walk in your paths, we will keep to the straight and narrow path as you have ordained for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we returned to our series in 1 Samuel, which we began earlier in the year, and then we went over for a time to John's Gospel. And so we'll pick up John's Gospel probably in 2020 once more, but at least for the rest of probably uh, 2019, we'll be looking at 1 Samuel again. And the book of 1 Samuel comes at a time of Israelite history where the Israelites have come out of Egypt. So the Israelites are the descendants of the 12 tribes of Israel, which come from Abraham, um, so Abraham is, uh, of course, the, the chosen one by the Lord uh, to experience the promises of God. God gave uh, particular promises to him after uh, we had creation initially. You have Adam and Eve, and then eventually descendant uh, from Adam and Eve, you have Abraham. From Abraham, you get the 12 tribes. 12 tribes end up in Egypt. Then God redeems them under the leadership of Moses. And they come out of Egypt. They wander in the desert for some time and then enter into the promised land under the leadership of Joshua. And then we have the period of the judges where God appoints different leaders who are not kings, but they are judges, they're leaders over Israel under God. And then we come to the book of 1 Samuel where we see the prophet Samuel has arisen and that's what we studied particularly uh, last time we were in 1 Samuel together. We saw the little boy Samuel uh, initially prayed for and then growing up and uh, being recognized by the people as a great prophet in Israel. And so now we see here in chapter 8 that there's a turn that the Israelites take and that is for the desire, they have this desire for an earthly king to reign over them. And we see this because this, this really arises, this desire for a king, because once again, the people recognize the corruption of earthly leaders, the failures of earthly leaders. And we see this even in the book of Samuel, but the book of Judges is a very clear example of leaders who, yes, do serve the Israelites, but they fail in many different ways. If you know the character of Samson, at least, and you see how God gave him great strength. And yes, he did conquer God's enemies with that strength. He inflicted heavy losses upon the Philistines. But he also wasn't, it was a person of questionable moral character. And the things that he did were certainly not things uh, that someone who is a great leader of God's people should be doing. And so Judges sets the scene again and again for the book of 1 Samuel that there, there really needs to be a better leader than many of the judges were. And even 1 Samuel opens with the failure of a particular leader. Who's the leader at the beginning of Samuel? Well, it's Eli. And what's Eli's problem? Well, He gradually gets older, he was leading God's people, and he appoints his sons to be leaders of God's people. And they were so wicked that the Lord actually put them to death, Hophni and Phinehas. And we studied them and the way that they were failures to the people of Israel as Israel's leaders. And here in 1 Samuel chapter 8, we see that Samuel himself, this great prophet, also is guilty of failing the Israelites. What is his failure? Well, it's similar to Eli. What do we read in verse 1, 2, and 3 of 1 Samuel chapter 8? 
1 Samuel chapter 8, we read verse 1, when Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as judges for Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah, and they served at Beersheba. Okay, so he's following the pattern of Eli, appointing sons. Now, how are Samuel's sons in comparison to Hophni and Phinehas? Well, we read in verse 3. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. Just as Eli appointed wicked sons to be leaders of God's people, so Samuel is subject to the same weakness. He's got his favorites there, his sons, and he appoints them to be judges of Israel. And we see that those sons should not be in leadership positions. Three faults are given in verse three of them. How wicked are they? They accept dishonest gain, they accept bribes, and they pervert justice. They're turning aside after dishonest gain in verse 3 and accept bribes and pervert justice. And even with Samuel, you see another problem that he shares with other leaders and even the leader that is Eli. What's the problem with all earthly leaders? They get old. You see that in verse 1? When Samuel grew old, he's okay, he's a good leader, But eventually he gets old. And then the Israelites come to him in verse 5 and they say to him, you are old. It's always a good conversation started with someone. You open up with, you are old. But they're recognizing that, Samuel, you're a good leader, but you've got a problem. You get old. And eventually all good leaders, they do die in this world. They may be good, and you hang on to them for as long as you can, but something starts to go wrong with their minds. They're not as capable as they were, and they eventually die. And you see that with Eli as well. Eli, he starts to lose his sight. It says that he's a very heavy man, and eventually that that weight kills him. He actually falls back in a chair, and his neck is broken, and the Bible says he's a very heavy man there. He slowed down. He was not able to lead as he did. And that's the problem with Samuel here. People are recognizing he's only got so much more time with us. And so we need a solution to this problem. We need a solution to these leaders who keep failing us, even if they simply get old and die. And so what is the solution that the Israelites have? We need a king. We need a king. And you see that in verse 4 and 5. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Solution, now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. The solution is to give us a king. And they reiterate this in verse 19 and 20. Verse 19, the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and to fight our battles. The solution for them is to have a king like the other nations. We look at the other nations and we see the way that they succeed. And it's because they have a king. And that's what we need. We need a king. But God and Samuel are quick to warn the Israelites that kings fail as well, to warn the Israelites of the failures of kings. And we see that in verses 11 through to 17, where Samuel has spoken to the, the Israelite, uh, to, to God. God has said, now you need to warn them what will happen if a king will reign over them. In verse 90, uh, that's the Lord speaking, verse 9 to Samuel. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will do. 
And what are the failures of kings? Well, one of the failures of kings or one of the things that kings do to us is that they tax the people. And you see that in verse 11 where Samuel speaks to the people and he says, This is what the king who will reign over you will do. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and others to plough his ground and reap his harvest and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Not for himself, but for his officials and attendants, your men servants and maid servants, and the best of your cattle and donkeys, he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks, and you yourselves will become his slaves. What does a king do? He takes, you serve. That's what a king does. God wants to tell the Israelites. He will take, take, take. He takes of your children. He takes of your sons. He takes of your daughters. He takes of your crops. He takes of your animals. He takes, 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 and you serve. They serve, serve, serve a king. And you see what's actually happening here as God speaks to them, that there's almost a return to the exodus is this idea that's coming through here. Look at verse 17. How does it describe the Israelites there? He will take a tenth of your flocks, and you yourselves will become his slaves. What was the great promise that was given to the Israelites when they were in Egypt? I will take you from slavery. I will set you free. And what are the Israelites asking for? We want to be slaves again. We want a king to sit over us and who we will give to and who we will serve. And then, of course, the problem with kings that's shown throughout the book of 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, is not just that they take, they tax the people, but they also are corrupt. Again and again, you see in the book of 1 Samuel, even the very best of kings are corrupt. They do things that kings ought not to do. They take advantage of the people and they rule unjustly, even as Samuel's sons were turning aside after dishonest gain and accepting bribes and perverting justice, you see the kings that come are not immune just because they're kings, because they're not judges, because they're not leaders. They are also corrupt as well. And you see the frailty of kings throughout the rest of the Bible as well, in that they also get old and die. Just because they're kings doesn't make them immortal. No, they get old and die as well. And it's so ironic that... The first king of Israel, how did he end his life? Saul, who we'll study in weeks to come, how did he end his life? He did what the Israelites wanted. What did the Israelites want a king to do? Verse 20, it says, Then we'll be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and go and to go out before us and fight our battles. King Saul, he goes out to fight the Philistines. What happens? The Philistines lose. And as he sees the loss coming, what does he do? He falls on his own sword. He commits suicide. That's the king of Israel that the people want. Someone who is so frail that he can't win their battles as they ask, and he even kills himself at the end of 1 Samuel. And worst of all, 
The problem with wanting a king, an earthly king, is that it's a rejection of the kingship of God. And you see that in verse 7. Verse 7 of 1 Samuel 8. And the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. They already have a king. It's God. But by asking for another king, they're rejecting God as their king and showing that pattern that they've shown all along, as it says there in verse 8, that they have been forsaking God for so many years. They're just following in the footsteps of their fathers who have forsaken God in the past. And it should be that God is going out and fighting their battles as their king. That's who they should be looking to, not an earthly king. And so the Israelites here are foreshadowing that terrible moment years later where the Jews, what do they say before Pilate? We have no king but Caesar. We have no king but Caesar. The Israelites have once again shown their true colours. God is not their king. They want an earthly king. They want a human king to be their ruler rather than God. Now, has the situation changed today? No, it hasn't. Today, we still have corrupt leaders and failing leaders. It is not as though humanity has grown up and we're not like the Israelites today. No, there's still failures of kings and leaders today. Jesus affirmed in that passage that we read in Matthew chapter 20. What did he say to his apostles? He said, the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over the people. The rulers of the Gentiles lord it over the people. That's what leaders do. They love to lord themselves over the people that are under them. And no system of government has been able to remove all corruption from leaders. Politicians, judges, police, military, they do what the sons of Samuel were doing. What do they do? Verse 3, they turn aside after dishonest gain today. Yep. They accept bribes. Yep. They pervert justice. Even here in Australia... How do we know? Well, we have that wonderful commission called the Independent Commission Against Corruption. Why do we have that? Do we need that in Australia? Yes, because people still turn after dishonest gain, accept bribes and pervert justice. The very fact of its existence demonstrates that the same problem that the Israelites saw so many years ago is still here today. And even within the church... Church elders and deacons in congregations will fail us too. We see that in Matthew chapter 20 with the apostles, the apostles themselves, uh, James and John, are wanting what? They're wanting to be lords over the other apostles. They're wanting to put themselves up in the church. They're wanting that power over others. And it still happens in the church that... Today, elders and deacons and congregation, other church members who make decisions affecting you, they'll fail you too. The older I get, the more I realise how easy it is for me to say or do something that's offensive to others. Because I've still got a sinful heart as well. And it's so easy for me to eventually say something or do something that will be offensive. And it's also so easy for someone to get offended by something I say or do, or even by what I believe. It's not a case, if you hang around me long enough, it's not a case of if I offend you. It's a case of when 
will I eventually offend you in some way by what I say, by what I do, or even by some sort of theology that I believe and that you do not think is in Scripture. The longer I'm here, the more time, it's just a matter of time until you're offended by something I say. And so if you expect perfect leaders, even within the church, you will have to remove elder after elder and deacon after deacon. And sadly, that's what some churches do. Preaching elder, pastor after pastor is removed within a few years. And it's simply because they're expecting perfection. And the longer you're with someone, eventually you'll find something you don't like. And you'll remove that person. There are problems in leadership positions throughout our world, including inside the church. And even if you find the best politicians, and even if you find the best church leaders, what eventually happens? They all go senile and die. You can't hang on to them. Even if you find the best ones, they eventually go senile and die, just like we saw with Eli, just like we saw with Samuel. You see it again and again, that even the best ones, they all have a problem. Eventually, they will die. Now, as we agree with Scripture here, and we see the corruption of leaders, we see the failures of leaders, and we see it in history, and we see it in our own experience, we can be ready to despair. How can we ever have a leader who will look after us? And that's the purpose of the Old Testament, is to show all through it the corruption of humanity, including in its leaders, even in the very best of humanity. There's corruption, there's problems, there's failures. That's a purpose of the Old Testament. So what can we do? Well, just imagine a perfect king. Imagine a king who owns everything, so has no need for taxation and no need to be greedy. Imagine a king who is never corrupt in administering justice. Never. Always judges perfectly. Imagine a king who doesn't die so that we don't have to worry about a change of rulers. Imagine a king who is God himself. So God doesn't get offended by our trust in him as king. Is there such a king? Yes, there is. You don't have to imagine such a king. It's not a fairy tale. It's Jesus. Jesus is that king. Jesus is God. So having Jesus as our king is not a rejection of God. Jesus has no need to tax his people and is never greedy. Why? Because Jesus owns everything anyway. What does Psalm 50 say? I have no need of a bull from your stall. This is God speaking. I have no need of a bull from your stall or goats from your pens, in comparison to what we saw in 1 Samuel 8 there. For every animal of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains, and the creatures of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world is mine, and all that is in it. Jesus is a king who owns everything. So he doesn't need to pervert justice to fleece his own place. No, he owns it all anyway. He is not going to turn after dishonest gain or be greedy. And Jesus isn't a corrupt ruler either. He is the one who is holy, who is just, who is righteous, perfectly and always. And Jesus is eternal. He is not subject to the corruption of the body 
All leaders are subject to corruption. At a minimum, they're subject to the corruption of the grave. But what do we read in Psalm 16, which is applied to Jesus in in, uh, Acts chapter 2 by the Apostle Peter? Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. Jesus doesn't decay. His mind doesn't go and he doesn't die. He did die once, but he is risen. And even then, he was not abandoned to the grave. He has come back and he will live eternally. But the question then is, does Jesus fight our enemies? Yes, he looks good on paper as a king, but will he serve? Will he help us? Will he fight our battles? And the answer is yes, Christ has gone into battle and fought our enemies. How do we know this? Well, wonderfully, we've got the New Testament, and it tells us about the great victory of the Lord Jesus at the the cross, where he fought sin and Satan and the evil powers that reign and death itself. Turn with me now to Colossians chapter 2 and look at the service of the Lord Jesus, the way he fought our battles. That's page 1,166. Colossians chapter 2, page 1,166 where the Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Colossae. Chapter 2, verse 13, 1,166. The Apostle Paul says, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. There's a battle for you. There's a triumph for you at the cross. Jesus was triumphing over our sin, the way that we've broken his laws again and again. He was triumphing as he was paying for our sins and triumphing over Satan and his demons, fallen angels. He was triumphing over them, making a public spectacle of them. That's what kings do. They make a public spectacle of the enemy. And that's what Jesus did at the cross so many years ago. So Jesus has gone into battle for us, and he will go into battle for us. He will go before us and lead us into battle. We know this because we have that wonderful book of Revelation, which is difficult to understand in many things, but there are many things that are quite clear, and one of them is that Jesus will triumph on the last day. Turn with me now to Revelation chapter uh, chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19, page 1,229. Revelation chapter 19. And the Apostle John here is seeing a vision of what is to come. And we'll read from verse 11. uh, Revelation chapter 19, reading from verse 11. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God." 
the armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He's prepped for battle. Then we continue to read verse 17. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair. Come, gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals and mighty men of horses and their riders and the flesh of all people, free and slave, small and great. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulphur. The rest of them were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse. And all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. There's a king who goes to battle. He will go to battle and he will win. And he will triumph not just over Satan, the beast. He will triumph in our lives where we will go and we will sin no more. Where death will no longer have any power over us whatsoever. We will be gathered into the glories that are to come. And not only has Jesus fought for us at the cross and at many other times. And not only will he fight for us as our king, but he does fight for us today. He helps us now in our battles every day as we go about our lives and as we struggle with sin and temptation and the sufferings of this world. And as we go to war with Satan, we fight spiritual battles. Jesus is there as our king helping us. So do you see what kind of king Jesus is? He's so different from all other leaders. He gives and he serves and we are the takers. Do you see the stark difference between Jesus and the king that is described in 1 Samuel chapter 8? He takes, 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 takes. Whereas we are the ones who take and he gives, gives, gives. We saw that in Matthew chapter 20 verse 28. That wonderful verse, Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Yes, we do serve Jesus and we do give to Jesus as our king, but it's a privilege that he gives us. He doesn't need us to serve him. He doesn't need us to give him anything. He is the one who has served and given. And so in joyful and loving response, we give and we serve not because we're forced to, but because he gives us the privilege of giving and serving him. So this morning, is Jesus your primary leader? Is he your king? Is Jesus the one that you turn to first to fight your battles? Now, I'm not saying you can't trust earthly leaders, but who do you put your primary trust in? It's okay to call the police when you're in distress, But you recognise that the police here in Australia are a gift from God. They're a gift from your king by which he administers justice here. 
you recognise that they're not your first port of call, that Jesus is. He is your king. If Jesus is not your king now, ask him to be your king today. Don't run after other politicians and put your trust in earthly leaders, those who will fail you, even church leaders. Don't put your trust in me. Don't trust other elders and deacons of this church, even the best of church elders and deacons. All they can do for you really is point you to Jesus. That is our job. You're not supposed to be adhering to me. You're supposed to be adhering to Christ as the great king. Ask Jesus to be your king. Do it now. Don't delay. Why shouldn't you delay? 1 Samuel 8 tells us why we shouldn't delay. If Jesus is not your king, what was the warning given to the Israelites? 1 Samuel chapter 8. Turn back with me there. 1 Samuel chapter 8. After they hear about how the king will take, 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 take from you, what does it say in verse 18 of 1 Samuel chapter 8? When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, and the Lord will answer, no, the Lord will not answer you in that day you don't know what tomorrow will bring but you know where you stand with Jesus now and if you're not standing with him as your king then do you realize that tomorrow you may call out for relief from some corrupt politician some bad boss at work someone who's taking advantage from you and God will not hear you he will not answer you do not delay Call on him now. Ask for forgiveness for rejecting him as king in the past and have him as your king even now. But you may be asking yourself this morning as a Christian, how do we keep Jesus as our primary trust and not put our trust in earthly leaders as the Israelites were doing there so many years ago? Well, what led Israel to want to have an earthly king instead of God? It was fear of their enemies. They wanted a king who would go out in battle. They were conscious of the Philistines. They were conscious of the Ammonites. And they wanted a king who would take away that fear for them. And fear drives us still today to trust in earthly leaders and to trust in idols of the nations. We look at the culture and we see how they overcome their problems and we say, we want to be like them. And what are they doing? They're submitting to this, this and this. Okay, then we'll do that too. And all it does is reject our God as king and brings pain upon us. So we must calm our fears if we are to keep Jesus as our king. Learn to calm our fears and learn to rejoice in Christ's leadership. How? Well, firstly, reflect on the failures of earthly leaders. Reflect on how they can never deliver on their promises. They make great election promises, but after the election, do they deliver? So often, sadly, they do not. Well, they give you something that's half of what they wanted, they said they'd promise. Reflect on the failures of leaders. Reflect on the failures of even church leaders, how they cannot do everything that you want of them. And then reflect on the victories of Christ and the perfections of Christ how he is perfectly just, how he is perfectly powerful. He has no need of anything, and he is eternal and will not die. There is no leader like our leader, no king like our king, 
And therefore, he can calm any fear that you have that may lead you astray to swear allegiance to a false God. Let's come to our God in prayer. Let's speak with him. Lord Jesus, we praise you as our perfect king. Forgive us for trusting in failing earthly leaders instead of you so often and help us to overcome the fear that we have of our enemies. Help us to overcome that fear by remembering that you are our king and to rely on you in all our battles with all our enemies. And we pray this in your name. Amen.